You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Well, uh, as we're here in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, you can uh, put on your tennis shoes because Paul is on the move. Okay, him and him and Barnabas and their assistant Jonathan have gone from Antioch uh, to uh, the island of Cyprus. We've studied. Uh, we saw them encounter uh, a sorcerer, a deceptive sorcerer named Elymas or Bar Jesus, uh, as they were witnessing to the governor of the island of Cyprus, uh, uh, Sergius Paulus, uh, as. As Paul would preach the gospel to Sergius Paulus, Elymas the sorcerer would, would whisper, um, whisper deceitful lies against the gospel until finally uh, Paul just rebukes the sorcerer and uh, the sorcerer becomes blind for a time. Sergius Paulus, the governor, then uh, believing in the teaching, being astounded at the teaching of the word of God which was validated by the, the miracle of blindness there. And uh, so exciting story already as we looked at uh, verses 1 through 13 two weeks ago. Now we see uh, them move to the area of Antioch and Pisidia. And we're just going to kind of have this map up uh, just for you guys to be referencing throughout the study as, and throughout the book of Acts as um, you know, names are thrown out there. Sometimes if you don't recognize the name of a city, it kind of throws you off a little and it kind of makes you distant from the story. So you know, just a map here of the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem down in the bottom right, Israel there, Palestine, Antioch up north in Syria. That's the starting point, the sending place from now on for world missions uh, from now on in the book of Acts. Uh, and then as they've moved to the island of Cyprus, Paphos, we'll see them move on over to Persia uh, or Perga in the region of Pamphylia there uh, today. Now in verse 13, it says, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia and John departing from them returned to uh, Jerusalem. Now notice there, uh, it says Paul and his party. Or Paul and his companions set sail. So this is kind of that pivotal moment in the book of Acts where uh, the focus is taken off of Peter in the first really 12 chapters. Um, and then even off of Barnabas as the leader of this missionary journey. And now Paul basically becomes the leader of these missions trips. Uh, it's Paul and his companions set sail. And, um, you know... For some reason, John or John Mark uh, decides to leave the missions trip now and go home. And no one really knows what the reason was for that. We know he was a young man. He's the, the nephew of Barnabas. Uh, we're not sure why he left, perhaps being young and having just had that odd, scary, bit scary encounter with that sorcerer where they were withstood and, and, you know, a guy went blind and, you know, maybe that was just too much for him and he needed mommy, you know, and, and so he set sail back to Jerusalem. Uh, maybe it was the fact that his uncle was no longer kind of the guy in charge and maybe he was having problems with Paul's authority now, or, or maybe he was, you know, uh, as, as Galatians tells us, Paul was really sick really sick in that sickness, a type of malaria uh, affected Paul's physical features and conditions and his eyesight on this first missionary journey. Perhaps 
The thought of sailing to Perga and then crossing the, the huge Taurus mountain range by the word Lycia there. Uh, maybe that was just too much. I can't do this. I can't be taking care of Paul and his, with malaria, crossing a mountain range. And I, I got to go home. No one really knows. But we do know, and we're going to read more about it in Acts chapter 15, that Paul didn't appreciate Jonathan leaving the missions trip. Uh, Paul didn't uh, appreciate being deserted. And, and that's the word that's, that's used in Acts 15. Uh, you know, Paul appreciated faithfulness. You know, uh, and it's required of a steward or a servant, Jesus says, that one be found Faithful, And so we're going to see that this departing of John Mark is going to have some consequences in Acts chapter 15. And we'll get more into that uh, later. But, you know, we don't even really know why John was on this trip. Uh, besides the fact that he's related to Barnabas, we read here in chapter 13 that he was their assistant. Um, but notice at the beginning of chapter 13, it says that the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas. For the work that I've, that I've prepared for them. It doesn't say John, uh, or Mark. And, uh, and so some think, well, you know, John just wasn't called for this trip. And so he, he should have sought the Lord himself. Who knows? The point is, he went, he went home. He went crying home to mommy, and it's gonna have consequences in chapter 15. Uh, in verse 14, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So remember, this is the Sabbath day. So this is a Saturday uh, that they went uh, into uh, a synagogue and and watched the Jews uh, read the prophets. And it was common practice to have visiting Jews, uh, you know, speak something uh, as they were visitors. That's kind of a dangerous thing uh, to just give anybody free reign. Anyone here want to talk? You know, everybody wants to be heard, you know, and sometimes that's just not good. People say things that <laughs> shouldn't be said. And uh, yet, for some reason, the Holy Spirit must have prompted the, the ruler of the synagogue there to have uh, Paul or Barnabas stand up and speak some sort of uh, exhortation, a word of exhortation, a word of, of spurring on of some kind. You know, hey, visitors, you know, what would you have to say? Perhaps they knew Paul uh, as Saul. Perhaps they remembered him as that man from Jerusalem. And, you know, wow, he, he's a big name from Jerusalem. Let's hear what he has to say. And uh, what we basically have here is an open door. This is an open door for the gospel. I mean, could you imagine going into a non-saved venue? Uh, You know, perhaps a, a, uh, you know, uh, I remember my wife when she was in high school, she had a Mormon friend and she went, she was a, my wife, a believer, strong believer, went to a Mormon camp because she had such a heart to evangelize to her friend. She thought, well, maybe I can, uh, you know, witness to my friend and learn more about, I mean, imagine going to a Mormon camp and they say, hey, visitor, do you have anything to say to us? Speak on, free reign, here's the microphone, you know, okay, <laughs> you know, uh, an open door for the gospel. What would you do in that situation, whatever it might be, whatever size venue it was? Are you ready for that? You know, have your heart ready. Ask the Lord to make you ready for that open door for the gospel here. And, uh, and so it says there that Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. 
And so Paul, remember, it's here in chapter 13 that we first see Paul called Paul. Before chapter 13, he was Saul, the name meaning requested one or desired one. And now that he knows Jesus, his name has been changed to, to Paul, which means little. And so here we have this, this, this humble man standing up in the power of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you guys know people that talk with their hands a lot. You know, does anybody know anyone that's just constantly talking with their hands? If you ever want to get one of those guys to shut up, just tie their hands down, you know? Can't talk. <laughs> and, uh, but, but Paul stood up, motions with his hands, and begins to, to preach. Uh, a special moment in the book of Acts because this is Paul's first sermon. And we have it recorded for us. His first sermon. And you, you never know, maybe he was nervous here. You know, some of you that have, have taught or spoken, you know, do you remember those nerves? Uh, as you got up there, I remember my nerves, you know, I, I have friends that um, for years, they would throw up almost every Sunday before they would go preach, you know, I never really had the, that type of a stomach, but, you know, perhaps there were nerves there. Stories told of, of Charles Spurgeon, who had a school of ministry uh, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, his church over there in London. And in this school of ministry, they would have uh, kind of impromptu sermon time. And he would come and he would call on someone in the class to come preach an impromptu sermons that had to have three points. And if you've heard or, or seen, you know, drawings, the, the pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle was so large, it had a spiral staircase going up uh, to the top of it uh, for, for amplification. And so there's the story told of one young man that Spurgeon calls on. And as the man's walking up, Spurgeon said, you're going to teach on Zacchaeus. And so the, the man went up there and was shaking and nervous and, and sweating. And he said, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And I am a wee little man. Zacchaeus was up in a tree. And I am up a tree. <laughs> Zacchaeus got down. And I am going to get down. <laughs> and he got down. And, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, we don't know. I mean, we think of Paul as always the masterful preacher, and he does a great job today. Uh, but maybe there was just, okay, it's not me here. It's the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to open my mouth and, and trust that whatever he says is going to be of his power, the power of the gospel. And so he begins to preach here. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, preaching is logic on fire. And we're going to see from this sermon of Paul's, it is logical, it is reasonable, it is getting the Jewish people in Antioch to think about their, their belief system and their practices. It's just, it's absolutely true that this is uh, logic on fire. And as we look at the next uh, many verses, we're going to see that Paul is going to preach the gospel to this Jewish synagogue here. Now, that phrase may seem uh, pretty normal to you, the gospel. You know, here in America, the gospel really means a lot of different things. In fact, to the world, gospel just speaks of religion or it speaks of a type of music that has a, a religious theme to it. Perhaps people in choir robes somehow singing along with it. And so as, as Americans today, we need to ask ourselves, what is the gospel? If Paul's going to preach the gospel here in Antioch, what is that? What is he going uh, to preach? And there's a lot of different viewpoints, even within the church, of what the gospel is. Uh, we're going to steal a little bit from the men's group yesterday as we dove into what is the gospel and how does it shape our worldview. You see, everybody in the world has a world 
view. A worldview speaks of the lens that you see the world through. If you have glasses on, that is, you know, you see everything, how that glass or those, those lenses allow you to see the world. Uh, you know, as an example, you know, if you put an apple on a table, an artist would be looking at that apple thinking, how can I draw that apple? You guys know artists, not much of one myself, but you guys know artists, musical artists or, or, you know, sketch artists. And are they not always drawing or thinking of songs? They've got a pad with them all the time, sketching their worldview is shaped around art. You know, if you're a botanist and, and you see the apple, you're thinking, how can I classify this with this type of apple or it goes into this species or whatever, genome, phylum, king, you know, you know what I'm talking about. I don't really know what I'm talking about. Men, you remember yesterday. But, uh, uh, but then, you know, another guy like myself, you'd look at the apple and just think, how can I eat that thing? You know, what kind of food can I make? I can make a pie. I can make a, you know, a caramel apple sucker, you know, and, and that's what you're thinking. You're thinking about, Food And so whatever your lenses are, you're just constantly thinking of everything in the world is, is shaped by how you see uh, through those lenses. Okay, so uh, people in the world, they see everything uh, through their worldview. Christians, everything that we see, everything we do should be shaped or viewed through the lens of the gospel. But as a Christian, that's difficult if you don't really know what the gospel is. You'll have, you know, mismatched lenses that'll cause blurriness or, you know, you'll be stumbling and tripping into things. And so we want to come back to the basics this morning and ask ourselves, what is the gospel? The Lord's really been doing a, um, almost a, a revival work in, in me and in the elders and in, in, uh, Stuart, uh, ask, you know, everything that we do, we want to look at it through the lens of the gospel. We want to just see the gospel in everything that we do. And uh, one of the things that kind of spurred that on is Stuart found this book, What is the Gospel? Uh, by Greg Gilbert. Really simple, short book, easy read. Uh, in the first chapter, uh, he'd interviewed some evangelical Christians and just asked them very simply, what is the gospel? And I want to read to you a few different responses that he got from people who call themselves evangelical Christians, okay? Um, some of these aren't wrong. Some of them are. Uh, some of them are just missing a few key components of the gospel. And uh, hopefully you'd be able to kind of just sense uh, where things are off or what things are missing. So uh, here's a few examples. What is the gospel? One man says, the good news is God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine. But are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? So is that the gospel? Is, it, is the gospel thinking bigger or getting rid of negative mindsets that hold you back? An evangelical Christian thinks that it is. Here's the gospel in a phrase. Because Christ died for us, those who trust in him may know that their guilt has been pardoned once for all. What will we have to say before the bar of God's judgment? Only one thing. Christ died in my place. That's the gospel. Another one. The message of Jesus may well be called the most revolutionary of all time. The radical revolutionary empire of God is here, advancing by reconciliation and peace, expanding by faith, hope, and love, beginning with the poorest, the weakest, the meekest, and the least. It's time to change your thinking. Everything is about to change. It's time for a new way of life. Believe me, follow me, believe this good news so you can learn to live by it and be part of the revolution. 
Another one. The good news is that God's face will always be turned towards you regardless of what you've done, where you've been, or how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and is turned in your direction looking for you. Another one. The gospel itself refers to the proclamation that Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, is the one true and only Lord of the world. Let me just do one last one. My understanding of Jesus' message is that he teaches us to live in the reality of God now, here and today. It's almost as if Jesus just keeps saying, change your life, live this way. So is that the gospel? And uh, some of those, yes. Some parts of those, yes. Uh, most of those are missing uh, some major elements, major components, major truths. So what is the gospel? Well, whatever the gospel is, Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I want to give you uh, four main parts to this gospel, to the power of God to salvation. I want you to take notes on this. I want you to remember this. I want lenses to be polished today so that we can look at the world through the clarity of the gospel, the crystal clear lenses of the gospel. Uh, the gospel, these, these four main points consist of number one, uh, that we are accountable to God. Okay. We are accountable to God, uh, a righteous, holy, sovereign creator. And you can look at Romans 1.18 there. And in fact, if you could flip over to Romans chapter 1, uh, we're just going to be looking at a few verses in Romans. Some of you are familiar with the Romans road, Romans road of salvation beginning in Romans 3.23 uh, and, and going on. Here's another neat Romans road uh, to salvation uh, in, in, in Romans here, Romans 1 18, we see our accountability to God. It says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. So, uh, there's a, an accountability to God. God's wrath is going to be poured out on some men, some men, the ungodly men. And that just shows us that man is not uh, on his own. He's not autonomous. We didn't create ourselves. We're not self-reliant. As, as Acts is, uh, is going to say in chapter 17, Paul will say, you know, it's in God that we live and move and have our being. He holds all things together. We're not on our own. We don't have our individuality that so many men think they do. Uh, but we are responsible to a creator. He has creator rights over us. So that is a big thrust, a big point of the gospel is that man is accountable to God. Number one is God. Number two is man. And you can look in verse 22 there of Romans 1. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Or as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, at the heart of their rebellion, they've changed their worship that would go towards the one who created them and instead went to the created things. And that's at the heart of sin. That's at the heart of rebellion. And so our problem as men uh, and women is that we have rebelled against God. We've sinned. We've fallen short of his glory. We've rebelled against the one who has creator rights over us. 
In the book of Romans there, chapter one, we see that the Gentiles or the non-Jews are guilty of sin. In chapter two, we see that the, the Jews are, are, are guilty of sin. And in, in chapter three, there's this indictment against all mankind that everybody is guilty of sin and will one day stand before a righteous judge. And if they're still found guilty, uh, then they will have the wrath of God poured out upon them. That's a problem. That's the problem uh, is our sin. But the good news doesn't end there. So we have God, we have man, then we have Christ. We have Christ. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, we, re- we read that the solution to humanity's problem is in Jesus coming, uh, offering up his life as a sacrifice for the sins of man. And in Romans 3, 21 through 22, It says that the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all uh, who believe. So we read that there is a way for men to be righteous, to, to be restored, to be forgiven of their sins. But it's not in keeping the law. It's through faith in Jesus Christ and um and this is good news for us today, but it's only good news for you if you do the fourth part of the gospel. And that is to respond to that free gift of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. So we have God and, and we're accountable to him. We have man. We've, we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've sinned. We've rebelled. We've worshiped created things rather than the creator. We have um, Christ who's who's come to heal us and save us of our problems through dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And then we have the response, the response to the gospel. And Paul tells the readers of Romans how they can be a part of this salvation, how they can be included in this salvation. Romans 3.22, just the second half of it there, it says that that's through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all. Who believe. And so, you know, this isn't just good news for the world today. It's good news for you specifically if you'll believe, if you'll respond, if through faith you'll receive that forgiveness that comes through the shedding of Jesus's blood, that your sins were put on Christ at the cross and his righteousness as he never sinned was put on you so that the Lord sees you as never having sinned. Because Jesus gave you his righteousness. And so God, man, Christ, response. Okay, and so as you look at the, the, the scriptures, as you read through the scriptures, you want to constantly be having just an eye to pick out, uh, pick out the gospel out of the word. You know, as Jesus says in Luke 24, all of these things speak of me. All of the scriptures speak of me, uh, of a righteous God, and you're fit, falling short of my righteous standards. But I came and died on the cross so that you could be forgiven if you would respond and believe and receive. Now, as you look at, at the scriptures, uh, it's not always in these four uh, ways. Sometimes one is um, more... Uh, implicit than explicit. Sometimes one is more just a given. For instance, if, if Paul is preaching to the Jews, not every time does he talk about Yahweh and have to prove that there's a Yahweh because the Jews believed there was a Yahweh. 
You know, not, you know, it, it's more implied uh, to the people. So you want to look at who uh, is being spoken to, how much time is given over to that sermon. Um, but, but they're always implicit in the scriptures. Okay. So that's, that's a good thing to know as well. Now I share all of these things with you because as we go through, uh, chapter 13 of Acts, we're going to see the gospel preach and we're going to see each one of these areas there in Paul's sermon. We're going to see him talking about God, talking about man falling short, talking about Jesus being the only way to be saved and talking about the need uh, to respond to the gospel, the res- to respond to Jesus's righteousness. And so at the heart of the gospel, um, there's, there's these, these three areas um, but you know what? Also, as I was studying this week about worldviews, um, in the world, uh, all of these worldviews ask almost these same questions. They all ask, you know, where did we come from or why are we here? You guys know this amongst your non-Christians and, and the people within your circles. They're all wondering, where did we come from? Why are we here? Uh, something is wrong. What's wrong with this world? And then thirdly, how do we fix it? Okay, so everyone asks those questions. Everyone has a worldview and everyone's trying to figure out the answer to those questions. Well, the gospel answers those questions, but people in the world, they want to answer it their way. Uh, and so they create their own gospels, their own false gospels. Well, we came from this and, and here's the problem and this is how we fix it. We really got to do this or that. And it, it, all of that is false gospel aside from what we're going to read today in Acts chapter 13. So let's get into it, huh? Paul stood up and motioning verse 16 with his hand. He said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwell as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Okay, so now as we look in verses 17 through 20, 23, we're going to see the first part of, of the gospel outline that we've talked about. Uh, and that is God. Okay. Um, in fact, if you want to, if you've got a pen under, uh, I, what I did was I put a square around every mentioning of God. So if you see the word God or you see the word he, put a square around that when it's referencing God. And then underline um, every verb that God did. So here we go. Uh, it says that the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. So God chose and exalted the people when they dwell as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. As we go through these verses, we're going to see the, the theme of God did it. God is strong. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is in control. You know, God is the creator. God is the chooser. And he brought them out of Egypt. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. So we're just getting a history lesson here by Paul. And remember, the Jews love a good history lesson. If you ever want to witness to a Jew, just tell them their own history and how it all points to Jesus. That's what Peter has done. That's what Stephen has done. That's what Paul has done. Uh, so, they, you know, the Jews will listen because they love their history. And so Paul goes back and he says, man, God has been faithful. God's brought them out of the lands of Egypt. You know, God put up, uh, he, he's long suffering towards your rebellions there in the land of Egypt. And, uh, and even when you came into the promised land, who was it that destroyed these seven nations? 
It was God. God did it. And he distributed the land by allotment. Verse 20, after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So God you know, appointed these judges to help uh, keep order in the land. Now remember, it's, it's speaking of the book of Judges there after the time of Joshua. And uh, you know, that's been known as the, the dark ages in Israel's history. You know, as you read the theme, the theme phrase there in the book of Judges, does anybody know it? The, the, the key phrase in the book of Judges is that, and the people did what was right in their own eyes or in their sight. It was a period where they weren't doing what was right in God's eyes, but their own sight. And the result of that will always be dark ages. It's the dark ages of, of the history where God would raise up, you know, Samson and Deborah and Barak and Jephthah and Gideon and all these uh, judges that you read about uh, there in, in the book of Judges. But, you know, just this history lesson, there was this dark age there uh, until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. You know, Israel was supposed to be a theocracy. Their king was supposed to be Yahweh. And he promised them if they put their faith in him, he would never let them be conquered by an enemy. You know, he, he would always fight for their, for their country, fight for their nation, the seed of Abraham. But, you know, they, they didn't want God to be their king. They wanted to be like all of the other nations. They wanted to have, uh, you know, a, a, a monarchy. They wanted to have a, a figure that they could put their trust in. God said, you guys, if you do that, that king is going to, you know, he's going to have a, a hand over you, a heavy hand over you. He's going to require taxes to be paid. He's going to make your young men go into battle. Are you sure that's what you want? How, just put your trust in me. Let me be your king. No, we want a king. We want to be like those other nations. So he gave them uh, what they wanted and Saul uh, became their king. And then uh, when he had removed him, so notice that God removed Saul. And he raised up for them David as king. And real quick, just it's important to note that it's God who raised up Saul. And it's God who removed Saul. And it's God who raised up David. And as Daniel chapter 2 tells us, God is the one that raises up kings and, and tears kings down. Raises up kingdoms, tears kingdoms down. Uh, he's the one in control. That's good to know, isn't it? You know, come election time when it's all said and done, it was the Lord who put that man on the, on the throne for his sovereign purposes. And, uh, and so Saul was removed, you know, because of pride, because of disobedience. And he raised up David as king to whom he gave testimonies and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. What a beautiful phrase, what a beautiful verse about King David. You know, a man who was found after God's own heart. Now, isn't that interesting to read that, that David was a man after God's own heart, even though, you know, David was just a man. He was a sinner. You know, he was a guy that when being chased by Saul, he, you know, pretended to have rabies and he frothed at the mouth and he, and he you know, went crazy lying to protect himself rather than trusting in the Lord. Of course, we know him as, as the guy that, you know, murdered uh, Uriah so that he could have an affair with Bathsheba. And then he lied about that for, you know, a good year at least, you know. And, and so we see him as, as, a, as a liar, as a murderer, as an adulterer. How is it possible that such a man could be called a man after God's own heart? How's that possible? Why didn't God remove David like he removed Saul? 
Well, as you look at the history of the kings, you see that Saul was a prideful, arrogant man. And that when he was confronted in his sin, he wouldn't repent, but he was stiff-necked against the Lord. David was a man and was a sinner. And yet when he sinned and was confronted on his sin, convicted by the Holy Spirit, he repented of his sin. He repented of his sin and he appealed to what we call the sure mercies of David. As you read Psalm chapter 51, as he repents from his adultery and his murder, and he says, Lord, it's against you and you alone that I've sinned. Wash me of my sin. You know, it's just this beautiful psalm of repentance. And that's so promising for us, isn't it? That though we are sinners, the Lord knows just everything that we've done. It's all naked and open before him to whom we must give an account that we still can be called by him men and women after his heart. Not because of our righteousness, but when, the, when we're humble before him and we confess our sins, we repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and to forgive us from all unrighteousness. What a promise that we too can be men and women after God's heart, even though we're, we're men and women of, of you know, a sinful nature. But David will do all my will. In verse 23, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. So from David's seed, he's a, he, his son, his great, great, great grandson, uh, God will raise up for Israel a savior. And uh, so neat, you know, Linz and I have been working on memorizing the book of Matthew together. And so, you know, we all hunkered down and got the first chapter out and opened it up and all right, let's start. Boom. Oh, this is the genealogy chapter. <laughs> So I actually liked it. Um, so, so as we memorize the genealogy, you know, at the end of the genealogy, it says all of the generations from Abraham to the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations uh, from, or I'm sorry, from, uh, from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David to the ba- captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And then from the captivity in Babylon to Jesus Christ are 14 generations. So that means 28 generations were between David and Jesus. So that's, that's how far away in, in, uh, you know, great, 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 great grandpa, uh, Jesus was from David. But it was through David's seed that Jesus came. And as you read the genealogy there in the book of Matthew, even though Jesus wasn't David's actual son, you know, because of the whole immaculate conception thing, he's the son of God, he still is in the genealogy as the, um, royal heir of the throne. He's still Joseph's firstborn son, his first adopted son. And because of that, he's the royal heir to the throne. Did you know that? That it's through Mary's genealogy in the book of Luke that he has his hereditary right to the throne. And it's through Matthew's gospel, the, the line from, da- uh, from a- uh, excuse me, from uh, go back to Abraham and through the line of Joseph that he has his, uh, his royal firstborn right to the throne. 14 generations there, 28 generations uh, between David and Jesus. So uh, through David, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. And, uh, and so now we'll, we'll kind of transfer. God will still be a main theme through this as we're looking at the gospel. But now it begins to move towards man. Okay, and already in verse 23 that we see that man needs a savior, Okay, we see that man needs a savior. And then also, if you jump back there, it says that in verse 18, God put up with their ways in the wilderness. 
So we have, you know, here's God, he's powerful, he's sovereign, he's, he's working, he's, you know, he's doing things. Uh, and then we have man, and man is rebelling. Man is needing a savior. It says here in verse 24, after John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people Israel. And so in the history of Israel, now we have John the Baptist being brought in. And what was John the Baptist's message? It was a message of repentance. In other words, man, you've messed up. Man, you need to turn from your ways. Man, you've fallen short of the glory of God. And so uh, there, there needs to be repentance there. John the Baptist preached that. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Why do you think I am he? I'm not he. But behold, there's one who comes after me, the sandals of whom feet I'm not worthy to loose. So John the Baptist, this great figure in Jewish history who closed up the Old Testament. Uh, he was the last prophet in the Old Testament. And he's this man that in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, you know, when you went out to see John the Baptist, what'd you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? You got to see a prophet? I tell you this, John the Baptist was more than a prophet. John the Baptist was probably the greatest prophet that the Old Testament saw or Israel saw because he had that wonderful privilege of ushering in the Messiah. Oh, he's more than a prophet. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, man, there has not been a greater man that's ever come out of the womb of a woman than John the Baptist. He's the greatest guy that's ever been born. Of course, that was before Jesus, right? You know, and uh, so he's saying, man, John the Baptist, awesome, awesome guy. But what do we see in this verse we just read? How awesome is he compared to Jesus? This awesome prophet, this awesome man, not even worthy to lift up Jesus's sandal strap. <laughs> you know, that's how awesome Jesus is. That's how great Jesus is. And so now we begin to enter in the third part of the gospel, you know, Christ. So God, man, sin, rebellion needs to repent. But here's Christ coming as a savior. And he's awesome. He's glorious. And verse 27, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. So here he is, and he's speaking to a synagogue. Paul is speaking to a synagogue, right, in Antioch of Pisidia. And as he's speaking, he's saying, look, all of you guys, every Sabbath, you come in here and you read the prophets. We just got done reading the prophets. And he says, let me tell you this. The people who were reading the prophets were the ones that murdered and killed the very one that the prophets were speaking of. They didn't even know it, but they were fulfilling prophecy. God was sovereignly working. God's the one that did it. That every jot and tittle of his word would come to pass. And he says to them, you know, these guys didn't know it, but God was, was working through them to fulfill the prophecies, even in Jesus being condemned. And verse 28, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And so here we have the gospel. We have the story of Christ and how he's coming and how he can heal man and redeem man and reconcile man to a right relationship with God. He can forgive man of that trespass, of that rebellion against those creator rights. And what was necessary was that the Christ come, that he suffer, that he die as they nailed him to a tree. 
They took him down from that tree. They laid him in the tomb, but God raised him up. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. He didn't stay dead. Now, do you guys remember, what are we going to do every time we come across the resurrection reference? We're going to put an R by it in, in the word, aren't we? Because the resurrection is the pillar of the faith. If Jesus would have come and have, you know, done his cool prophet thing, walking around Galilee and multiplying loaves and fish and walking on water, that's all great. Even him dying on the cross. Wow, that's awesome and really moving that you would do that for me. But if he stayed dead in the ground, it would have canceled out all that he would have said and done before because he staked all of his claims on being absolute deity to the future event that he would raise from the dead. Okay. And so every time we see the gospel being preached, we're seeing the resurrection being referenced because it is pillar. It is paramount. It is so important to the early church. God raised him from the dead. And I hope you put a square around God and underline the word raised because it's an action of that sovereign Lord triumphing over death. It goes on to say he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. You remember from the book of Acts and from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus was presented alive after his death by many infallible proofs, being seen by many for 40 days. So for 40 days, Jesus walked around Israel and showed people that he was alive by proofs that there was no, it was no trick. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that not only did all the apostles see Jesus risen from the dead, but how many others? 500 other people saw Jesus risen from the dead. And you know what? If it was good enough for Peter to keep referencing the resurrection, and if it was good enough for Paul to keep referencing the resurrection when they were witnessing, I'll tell you what, it's certainly good enough for me. And how often do we go out there and we're trying to think, what should I say? What should I say? What should I say? What did the apostles say every time that they shared the gospel? It talked about the resurrection. You guys start incorporating the truth of the resurrection into the gospel as you're sharing it with the people that you love and that are within your circles. It was powerful enough for multitudes to be saved in the book of Acts. And it's just as powerful today in 2010. You know, it's, it's, there's a, a funny little story about Martin Luther back in the 1500s, uh, you know, kind of the father of the Reformation, that Martin Luther struggled with depression, constantly going out of these, you know, these vicious periods of depression. And finally, one day he was battling with depression so bad that he just wanted to wallow in it. He just wanted to stay in depression. If anyone has ever struggled with depression, you probably know that feeling. Just, just, I just want to stay in this place. And his wife was just, you know, constantly, uh, you know, helping and trying to bring him out of it, but he wouldn't be brought out of it. And so one day his wife, Catherine, dressed all up in black, dressed as if she was going to a funeral. And as Martin was sitting there at the, the breakfast table, eating his breakfast, just wallowing in his depression, she came down the stairs all dressed in black as if going to the funeral. And he looked up at her and he said, you know, who died? And she said, Martin, God died. And he said, Catherine, that is not true. Don't say such things. And she said, well, then Martin, quit living like it. And how often do we live like Jesus is dead in a tomb somewhere in Jerusalem? We don't believe he's on the throne. We don't believe he's at the right hand of the father ruling and reigning in glory and, and uh, constantly living, ever living to make intercession for us, the saints. 
And so often, I think, when we just go through those periods of, of, of downtime, we've got our eyes on everything but the resurrected Jesus. Let me just encourage you with that if you struggle with depression. When you start to sense that coming on, before you take a medicine, before you take a pill, I'm not saying that those are always bad, but I say make sure first thing is first, that you've got your eyes on Jesus, that you're worshiping Jesus, that you're proclaiming his resurrection and his faithfulness. And you know what? I believe that that will bring an incredible measure of joy into your life. But let's not look at Jesus as dead. Let's look at him as alive. Let's remember history that over 500 people saw Jesus at one time as alive. And I'll tell you what, that is something to rejoice in. You know, one of my great buddies said in one of his sermons that, you know, too many Christians are are walking around uh, living their Christian life like they're sucking on lemons every day, you know. And some Christians, that's just, they're, they're, you know, sour, you know. And man, Jesus is alive, you guys. There's such joy in that. And, uh, and so here they are. They're, they're uh, proclaiming, Paul is proclaiming the resurrection. And he says there, and we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made uh, to the fathers. And you might underline that word glad tidings or good news. He's proclaiming to them the gospel, which is good news or evangelism or in the Greek euangelion, which comes from the language of the battlefield when good news would be brought to the commanding officer. We've got good news. We've got glad tidings. But with all of this talk of the gospel, it's interesting to note that every time the gospel is presented, it doesn't always just have the flavor of good news. You guys see, when you preach the gospel, you have to confront people with their sin. And in order for them to be forgiven, they need to be blamed. You know, they need to be confronted with their falling short. They need to look at their inadequacy and their unrighteousness and their rebellion against God and their tendencies to go to worship the creation rather than the creator. And they need to be blamed for it. And you need to be blamed for it today. And it's only then as we're blamed for our sin that we can acknowledge our sin and we can ask for forgiveness for our sin. We know how bad of a state we're in. I need forgiveness. I need help because I've been blamed for all this. And you know what? It's true. I'm an adulterer. I'm an an idolater. I'm a murderer in my heart. I'm covetous. I'm materialistic. I have other gods before my God, Yahweh. I'm a sinner and I have been blamed and I need a savior. I've fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of that sin is death. Then you can present the gem of the gospel over the black backdrop of our blame, of our sin. And that gem of the gospel is, though the wages of sin are, are, is death, the gift of God is eternal life. So not always is the gospel all, you know, roses and peaches. You know, in fact, in Acts chapter 17, Paul begins to preach to the, the, the church, uh, not the church, but the people in Athens who have all of these other gods, and he preaches to them, and he doesn't even mention the cross or forgiveness or even the name of Jesus But he tells them about a judgment that's coming from a God. And it says that later on in in the chapter, as Paul was departing, people came up to them and wanted to hear more. And it's obvious that during that time, Paul laid out the gem. First, he needed that pagan culture in Greece to realize we are pagans. Look at all of these other gods around here. And Paul said, yes, you are pagans. There is one God that you will give an account to. You will be judged by him. Think about that for a second. 
And they came running after him. Okay, we need to hear more about this. All right, let me tell you. Let me tell you about this guy named Jesus. You know, and he went on to present the gospel there. And so, glad tidings, yes. But within that glad tidings, there is the black backdrop of blame and of sin and of failure and of unrighteousness that can only be healed and restored in the name of Jesus. He goes on to say, he goes on to say, Rory, it's time to be quiet and finish up. But <laughs> verse 13, God has fulfilled. I hope you're doing the square in the underline. God has fulfilled. God did it. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Psalm chapter two and um, Hebrews chapter one all use this in, in, in the, the father speaking to his son and the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses love to use this verse to say, see, he was begotten, he was raised up. You know, he was a created being. Jesus was a created being. And we say, no, he's God. And the context of this is not that he was raised up from the womb, but the context is he's raised up from the tomb, from the tomb, not the womb. He was raised up by God in victory and that he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He's spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Remember, Peter uses this or of all, verse 36, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw no, and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So this Psalm of, of David, as he writes, you're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. David wasn't talking about himself because he died and he was buried in Jerusalem and his body saw corruption. He was speaking of Jesus who would die, be buried, but raised from the dead. His body would not you know, have the worm. Uh, his body would not have the rot. His body would not have the corruption, but his body would be raised in glory. And Peter used that same argument in Acts chapter two. And he says, you know what? David wasn't talking about himself in this Psalm because David is dead. And he goes, we have his tomb with us to this day. We can go visit it. If we want, I'll open it up. You can see his skeleton and say, okay, obviously his body saw corruption. Well, then who is he talking about? He's talking about the one who rose from the dead. And let it be known to you, verse 38, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. It's through the man that rose from the dead that can forgive sin. No other man is able to forgive sin. As Acts chapter 4, verse uh, 12 says, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which man must be saved. But the name of Jesus, but the man who rose from the dead, it's him and him alone that can forgive sins. And you guys remember, you know, the paralytic being lowered through the roof uh, into that packed house that day in Capernaum. And, and what was the first thing Jesus said to that paralyzed man? He said, your sins are forgiven you. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. The guy's a paralytic. You know, and the, the Pharisees got angry. Who does this guy think he is being able to forgive sins? He says to you, hey, what's greater to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise up and walk? You know, it's kind of a rhetorical question. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. Oh, great. They must be forgiven. But to say rise up and walk. Now that physically, that's a miracle right there. He says, but that you might know that the son of man has the power to forgive sins. Not only am I going to say your sins are forgiven you, but I'm going to say rise up and walk. And the guy immediately rose up and walked. So who has the power to forgive sins? 
the one who rose from the dead. He, his name, Jesus Christ, he's the only one that can forgive sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified uh, by the law of Moses. And so, man, what a, a beautiful verse here because the, we couldn't keep the law. Uh, but Jesus was able to. Romans 8, 3 says this, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak in the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. We couldn't keep the law. The law couldn't be kept. It was weak in our flesh. But God kept it. Jesus condemned sin by keeping the law in his perfection. So it says that uh, if anyone who believes, he's justified from all things. And so here we have that, that final portion of the gospel there, the receiving or the responding. And he says, there needs to be a belief on your part. There needs to be a, a faith on your end. Yes, it is a free gift of God that we're saved. It's not of ourselves, lest any man should boast, but we're saved by grace, by that free gift through faith, through the avenue of faith, through believing. And if you believe, you'll be justified from all things. That word justified, it's a legal term. And it speaks of when the gavel is slammed down in a courtroom and the person on trial is declared innocent. Wish I had a gavel with me today. Bam, bam, bam. He's innocent. And in the heavenly realm, there's a righteous judge who sees and knows your heart If you genuinely believe in Jesus Christ, that his sacrifice paid the ransom for your sins, then today you can hear the gavel slamming down in heaven and the righteous judge saying, justified. As we all like to say as Christians, it's just as if I'd never sinned. In the Lord's eyes, we've never sinned before because of the righteousness of Jesus. So there's this responding. You need to believe. If you believe, you'll be justified. In verse 40, beware therefore, lest what is spoken by the prophets comes upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. There needs to be a response today. And if you're a despiser of Christianity, if you're a mocker of the faith, Don't you realize today that God wants to do such a radical work in your life? He's doing it in the lives of others. He's doing a work of accomplishing his purposes and you can be a part of it. But if you're a despiser and a mocker today, you're going to miss out on it. You're going to see it happening right in front of your eyes and you're not going to believe. So what can you do today if you're a despiser, if you're a mocker? You can repent of that mocking. You can repent to the Lord and confess, Lord, I've been against you. I've been laughing at you. I've thought Christians were so stupid and that you were so stupid and the thought of you were so stupid. I confess that to you. But Lord, today I believe. I believe that you are true. I believe that I've fallen short of your glory, that I've sinned and rebelled against you. I believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the ransom of my sin. And I respond to that today, Lord. I believe and I receive through faith the free gift of salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Stuart, you can come on up. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the glad tidings. Lord, we thank you that even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, we were at war against you. Lord, you showed us grace, not expecting to receive anything from us, Lord. But you came 
and you lived and you suffered at our hands and you were murdered by us, Lord. It was our sin that held you to the cross. And we thank you, Lord, for willingly laying down your life. And we declare you to be resurrected today. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you. 